We are in the book of Acts, chapter 12, all of chapter 12. I th- what I want you to see here is hope. There's a lot of hope in God in this chapter. And so where, where are you hopeless? Where have you given up that it can't be fixed, can't be redeemed? It is what it is. You're just going to have to tolerate it. And not tolerate it with contentment and happiness, but like tolerate it with a growing sense of maybe bitterness or low-grade irritability. My husband will never. And you're just kind of like, oh, well. She'll never. They'll never. This will never. So we always must work as Christians to bring what we believe about God, like, home, not leaving out there, not believe it for somebody else, but apply it, believe it very specifically for actual areas of our lives, but in our pride, we just accept some things as there are and kind of keep them compartmentalize and think that's not for God. That's just the way it is. Maybe you even get the kind of complex like this is just my cross to bear. But this text is full of the glory of God in very specific instances where he fixes what can't be fixed. He does what can't be done. Far more and abundantly than you could ever even think or ask. And so Christians are those who have hope because God is consistently bringing his people into places that they don't ever want to be and would never ask to be. Don't think anything can be done and he's got you right where he wants you with a husband who has this thing that you just don't like but if After 25 years, it's just the way it is. Or whatever. And so that's what this text is for. Let me read it. About that time, if you remember, this was just before this last week. We have Antioch, um, Paul and Barnabas teaching, and now they're headed back to Jerusalem with funds for relief of the saints there. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold... 
an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Now Peter came to himself, now, or when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when Dane came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man! Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would now deal bountifully with us, your servants, that we may have life and keep your word. Open our eyes that we may behold these wonders out of your law. We are sojourners on earth. Help us to see your commandments and be consumed with longing for your rules. Rebuke the insolent who wander from your commands. Take them away from us, for we love and keep your testimonies. Your testimonies, O God, are delight. Make it even more so. Please counsel us now according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts is one entire book recording the power of God through the Holy Spirit and bringing the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And yet this one book is divided into two parts, and this is the conclusion to part one. Main focal point on the church in Jerusalem, Peter as its main focal point, 
And now we read that Peter, in verse 17, is departing and going to another place, and we won't see him again in Acts, except for one little mention in chapter 15. The focus will move from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, from the Jewish church in Jerusalem to the Greek church in the Roman-speaking world, and the Greek-speaking Roman world. It will move from Peter to the focus more on Paul. And so chapter 12 is something of a conclusion, a retrospective on the first 11 chapters before the next section, part 2. And so this is kind of preparing your mind to shift. So it concludes with Barnabas and Saul after kind of reminding us of what has taken place. So Acts chapter 12 is still in Jerusalem, and we note that it's during the Passover. Herod Agrippa... Now, you'll remember back a few weeks ago when I preached out of Matthew chapter 2 and King Herod, Herod the Great, the one who slaughtered all of the baby boys two years old and under in uh, Bethlehem, this Herod is the grandson of that Herod. There's actually three Herods in the Bible, but I won't mess with you on the third one. This is Herod the Great's grandson. Again, don't forget the term Herod is like calling somebody king. It's a title. So this Herod, this king, grandson of Herod the Great, has been put on the throne by Caesar over Judea. He's the king of this region. He is a Jewish worshiper. He was, it was told, much more sincere than his grandfather. He was actually uh, that, but he's also a political animal. Back in Acts chapter 8, we saw a first major persecution break out against Christians by the Jews. And there we heard the account of Saul, Paul. After that settled down, Paul was converted, he left, it looked like the persecution settled down, the church was enjoying peace. A second round of persecution breaks out here, this time not by the Jews, but by political rulers, by Herod. He begins with just laying violent hands on some who belong to the church. So he's just arresting church members, doing violence to them. And then he moves on to killing James, the brother of John. Now you'll note that there's a few Jameses in the Bible as well. This is the two sons of thunder, James and John. This is John's brother, John, the gospel of John's brother. He beheads with the sword, and then he goes right after the leader of the leaders, Peter. And the timing is political. He arrests him around the Passover. This is when thousands and thousands of Jews would have been gathered. This would have had the biggest political payoff. And he wants to follow Jewish law, which is no executions during the Passover. So right when the Passover is over, right when it would have most political impact, he's going to kill Peter. But Peter, though he's rotting in prison, and we know what he doesn't know is going to be delivered miraculously. And so this is where we begin to see hope. God is always doing more than you know. He is always planning, working things according to his will. And so if you were Peter rotting in jail, if you were Peter, you know, Chain between two guards, it's, it's noted that he has four different squads that would be 
squads of four who rotate every six hours watching. Like, it's painting a picture that Peter was a very valuable target. And he guarded him as well as he could be guarded. And while Peter's in that situation, the church is gathered in Mark's mother's home, praying earnestly, constantly pleading. That word that's used of them praying earnestly in verse 5 is the same term that's used of Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was sweating drops of blood. They are praying with all that they have. Now, a bit of about Mark here. Mark is uh, the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He is Barnabas's nephew. So Mark's mother was Barnabas's sister. We don't ever hear any mention of Mark's father. Mark would be a companion with Barnabas and Saul or Paul on their first missionary journey. He would abandon them probably because of the pressure of the Jewish Christians and in the issue of circumcision. He sided with the wrong side and would abandon the mission as Barnabas and Paul are about to set out on their second and third missionary journey. Barnabas wants to restore Mark and take him back along. Paul refuses. Barnabas and Paul have such a severe argument that they split. That's this Mark. This Mark is likely the one, if you remember the strange account, when Jesus rests in the garden and a man is grabbed and his cloak is pulled off and he flees naked. That's likely this Mark. And Mark is likely the rich young ruler. And so Mark has a a lot of things going on. That's this Mark. So they're all together in Mark's mother's home praying. On the eve of Peter's execution, Peter's sleeping. And that's sweet. Would you be sleeping, chained, likely sleeping on a cold stone floor, no one to take care of your needs? You'll notice that he doesn't have his cloak on, he doesn't have his shoes on, and he's sleeping, knowing that he, he, he's on, the day before he's going to be killed. And he's sleeping. That's wonderful. An angel comes, bright light. Somehow the guards are kept unaware of this. He strikes Peter to wake him up. That word that he struck Peter is the same word used later on in the chapter when Herod is struck. Peter awakes. The angel is so patient with him telling him to put on his shoes, telling him to put on his cloak. This is communicating to us the care of God, isn't it? Take your time, put on your shoes, get dressed. The angel leads him out, opens the gates, and the angel leaves. Now, Peter thinks he's seeing a vision. Peter is, you know, he's half asleep yet. He doesn't think what's happening is real. Until the angel leaves, and he comes to his senses, and he goes to the mother of John Mark. Now, John Mark, I forgot to say this, we have Saul, Paul, John also called Mark. Sometimes we make more of these names than we should. These are just their Hebrew names and their Greek names. So John would be his Hebrew name, Mark, his Greek-speaking name. Saul is 
the Hebrew name, Paul, is the Greek name, and they're used interchangeably, so don't make theological points out of them. They're just two names for the same person, depending on where they are and what language they're speaking. So this guy, John, also called Mark, uh, that's where they are, and Peter's knocking at the gate, and this servant, Rhoda, comes. Now remember, the church has been praying earnestly for Peter. I think it's implied that they're praying earnestly for Peter's release. It could be that they're just praying that Peter would remain faithful as his life is threatened. I'm sure they were praying for that too, but it looks like they're praying for Peter's release. And yet when Peter shows up, they don't believe it at all, except Rhoda, except this servant woman. She alone seems to be having expectant answer of their prayer. The rest of them doubt. They don't expect Peter to be delivered, and they don't believe her. This, of course, reminds us back to the Christ's resurrection, where the women go, and they see the tomb empty, and they hear the, uh, uh, the, from the angel what had happened. They run back, and the disciples don't believe them. they got to go see for themselves. And so here, Peter keeps knocking. He's outside just being delivered, and... They finally come and open uh, the gate, and Peter's let in, and he has to motion for them to be quiet so he can tell them. He wants to tell them, and then he departs and went to another place. And as I said, this is really the last we hear of Peter in the book of Acts, other than in Acts 15. We'll get to that. Now, Peter, it is said, ends up in Rome, where along with Paul and other workers, they established the church in Rome. And he'll be executed under Nero. And it's said that he's executed upside down because he didn't believe himself worthy to be executed just like his Savior was. And so it's not the last we hear of Peter. Peter doesn't stop doing the work. He just goes to another place. Herod is enraged by this. So he's unlike his grandfather, but he's just like his grandfather. It would be common if guards let a prisoner escape that they would be killed, so that's nothing new. But he's murderous. So all the soldiers are executed. Herod travels to Caesarea uh, in order to celebrate Caesar. It doesn't say that here. One of the enjoyable aspects of Scripture is that it's true historically. There is a Roman, uh, a Jewish historian named Josephus who wrote a history of the Jewish people. He's not Christian, he's Jewish. And he has an account of this that's exactly the same as what we see in Acts chapter 12. He goes into more detail of why Herod left uh, to go to Caesarea. It was to celebrate something going on with Caesar. And he writes in great detail of the robe that Herod wore. It was woven with real silver, and when the sun shone on it, it just glittered spectacularly. And these people from Tyre and Sidon that had angered Herod, they had paid off uh, this other man, Blastus. Is that, was that his name? Lost my place here. Yeah, Blastus. And so they were able to get an audience. They're asking for peace because they were dependent on Herod. They start shouting out because of the awe of Herod, the sparkliness of Herod, and his ability to speak that he's a god. He's a god. And because Herod doesn't deny this, because Herod's enjoying it, God strikes him down. Josephus goes into more detail. 
Josephus says the exact same thing. At that moment when they were celebrating him as a god, Herod's insides just began to tighten and, and restrict, and he's having all these internal pains. He actually says, Herod, Josephus records that Herod says that he knows that he's being struck by God for his arrogance and pride. And Josephus records here what Luke records, that this, he, was, he was killed from the inside out very painfully. Five days later, he died. But, in verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. And that's a consistent point throughout the book of Acts, isn't it? Nothing can stop the word of God. The gospel is God's power unto salvation to the Jew first and also the Greek. And it doesn't matter who's against it. God's gospel, according to the eternal plan of God, will go forward. And so though all political, all military, all religious, all wealth are opposed, the word of God continues to increase and multiply by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then finally we see Paul and Barnabas having completed their mission, returning from Antioch to Jerusalem, giving the funds at this time, take John, also Mark, and go on what we'll see next week, God willing, in their first missionary journey around the Greek-speaking Roman world, planting churches and preaching the gospel. So Luke, as we said before, is giving a faithful reporting of what took place. He gives names. He gives even the name of the servant at the name of the home. And he's doing that because he wants you to know that what he's writing is faithful and accurate and true. And again, we have other sources that corroborate this. He's not lying. He shows it all. But what he wants you to see in the midst of all of this, all of this adventure, all of this imprisonment and death and release, that God is God and his word will continue. Now there are enemies. From the very beginning, after the sin in the garden, you have Cain and you have Abel. You have a son of Satan and the son of God. You have one who's a lover of the world and the things of the world and one who loves God. You have one who has no faith and one who has faith and they're at war. And the sons of the world are always trying to harm the sons of God. This is what God said would happen. You'll have constant conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of Eve. The sons of God will have their bruisings, but finally and fully the sons of the serpent will be crushed in the serpent as well. So we see that here. You have congregation members being arrested. Then they go after important leaders, of course. You try to kill the animal by cutting off its head, James and then Peter. And so don't forget brothers and sisters, that our Lord told us that if they did it to him, how much more his followers. And so we as Christians, provided we are living as salt, provided we aren't compromising, could all, can always expect trouble for the gospel. 
And so please don't neglect this. That one of the things that we are taught is that if there's ever trouble, we must be doing something wrong. That maybe we're, our words are too forthright. Maybe our tone wasn't quite right. Maybe we're not being loving enough to the world. Maybe our lives are too full of hypocrisy. Well, maybe that's all true. But the simple reality is just being a Christian will get you in trouble. Now, we are told by the apostles that we should suffer as Christians, but not for doing sin, but for doing what is righteous. And so don't pat yourself on the back if you're just a jerk and suffering for it. There are some Christians who think that they're being godly when they're just, you know, rude. But if we're Christian, if we will not compromise and if we love Christ, we can expect to suffer and suffer by the very people that shouldn't cause us suffering. Jesus said that I came to pit father against son. Came not to unite but to divide with the sword. So we have enemies. But God is not mocked. God's word will not be stopped. Herod in his pride is cut down. The one who is most spectacular on earth is reduced in the most awful of fashions. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, who fear God and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The Bible is a consistent record of God taking care of his people when they're in the most awful of circumstances, Exodus and so on. And so what are we to learn from this? Well, hope. What I'm, what I'm thinking of here is, let's say, I, I think this is true in every, genera- every generation, but we're in this one now. And so let's say you're in your teens or 20s and all you hear is pessimism from Christians. It's all you hear. Grandparents and parents saying things like, oh my gosh, I feel so bad for my grandchildren. that They got to live in a world like this. this is, it's just over. Our culture, our country is done. Doom. It can be pessimistic for young people growing up in a world like, oh, great. Good job. And I don't know that Christians should be like that, should we? Why do we constantly have such an Eeyore about us with the future of the world? That everything's bad, only going to be bad, and you can expect nothing but bad. That you're just inheriting a toxic wasteland and you have to pay taxes on it too. And yet, the God of Acts chapter 12 is your God, team. The God of 
Acts chapter 12 is your God 20-something. Quit listening to those older, grumpier people. Your life is not over before it begins. God is the God who silences his foes, delivers his people to further his word for his glory, and you have a part to play. So get on with it. Get on with it. I think this has to do with what you think this world is for. What is this world for? What is your life for? What's your expectation as you begin your adult life? What are you attempting? What will success look like? Again, look at these people in Acts chapter 12, most of them, the vast majority of them are unnamed. We don't even have Mark's mother's name. She just has a house. Her servant is named. What was she for? What did God give her to do? Well, she's some kind of wealthy woman. She has servants and a house big enough to host a church prayer meeting. What was she for? To practice hospitality for the saints. To have a place ready and cleaned up to gather so they could pray. What was Rhoda for? What was her role in this story, this adventure? Well, to be the only one who had any expectation of an answered prayer. That she was waiting to go to the gate. Maybe that's your role. But it's not hopeless. It's not pessimistic. You're part of the battle that's raged since Cain and Abel. So the first question is, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Are you on the side that's gathered in a home with earnest prayer? Or on the other? You are on an outrageous adventure. You'll live it in rather ordinary ways. You'll be a Rhoda. That, that should be your goal. I just want to be a faithful Rhoda. You'll be an unnamed church member who shows up at the prayer meetings. And yet, you're a part of something spectacular. You're not spectacular. We're not spectacular. But God uses our very ordinary, very plain things to do the accomplishing of his goal, which should be your expectation, the furtherance of the word for his glory. Another way to say it is Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. To live is Christ, to die is gain. My life is for Christ, and while I live, it's for him. In all of my ordinariness, in getting married and having children and earning an income and preparing a home and practicing hospitality and joining the church for prayer, dealing with all the aches and pains, but I want to do it for Christ. That's my expectation. And if I'm going to live for Christ, my expectation is it's not going to go that well. God does not treat his people with kid gloves, ever. He is far more hard on his people than Tolkien was on his characters. Right? Frodo's got nothing on Peter. 
And so, young people, nothing is impossible with God, provided your expectations are what God would have them to be. If your expectations are you're going to marry and have kids and make a lot of money and everything's going to go well and it's going to be happily ever after from the beginning, you're going to be sorely disappointed when you have your first child (laughs) or get married. Or go to college and come out with a lot of debt and then never work in the field that you went to college for. Or get your first job and think it's going to be great. You got all this training to be a welder and your boss is just a flat out jerk and you can't stand it. Why did God put you there? What are you there for? Was it so that you could become the most amazing welder and make a lot of money? Maybe, but it's likely to sanctify you, that you can be salt and light there. That they can see how a Christian handles a jerk. So this text is full of that kind of hope. I just want to say two other things. Hopeful people are prayerful people. Hopeful people are prayerful people. I think one of the disappointments and successes, but a disappointment of this COVID time is how little the people handled it with earnest prayer, but with a lot of complaining, especially against government officials. You know, I've said that before, so I'm not going to beat you over the head with it again. Man, they gathered together in a home as an entire church, knowing that Herod has been seeking Christians to arrest them. They still get together and pray for Peter. Hopeful people are prayerful people. What kind of prayer? Earnest prayer. To whom? God. By whom? The entire church. And then hopeful people are prayerful people and they do it with much humility. Herod is a counter to this. Herod is a foil. God does oppose the proud but gives grace to the humble. And humble people are prayerful people. Humble people are full of hope because they know that their hope is only in God. Pride like Herod goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall, Proverbs 16, 18. So what is more humble than prayer? Now, it's not the Pharisee kind of prayer. God, thank you that I'm not like so-and-so. It's like the beggar. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so... If your God is this God, you have nothing but hope, provided you have the right expectations. Provided that your expectations are this life that's given me, this adventure, this difficulty in all the ordinary ways has been given me in order that I might live for Christ. And I can't wait to die in medium, but while I got breath, it's for him. And whatever he brings is for my sanctification. Whatever he brings is for his glory. And whatever he brings is so that I can meet it with prayer. So if I were going to give you one thing from this, just give, take Rhoda. Like, try to be Rhoda. There is your example. Men, be, be Rhoda. Handle all that comes this coming week with Rhoda-like expectant prayer. 
You aren't thought of as anything as Rhoda, right? Rhoda's just the, the servant who waits by the door. That's all she is. So we're not trying to gain more clout and more titles. We just are okay to be Rhoda, but we're going to be faithful as Christians with hope in our God expectant. Let's pray. God, please help us now that we might have great hope in you, that we might put away all ungodly pessimism and dour down complaining and grumbling, that we might put off saying that this is the last generation and everything's going down, that we might, while it's still day, work because we have hope in you, that we might truly live as if our lives matter for Christ. That we might look forward to the appearing of your son, towards our death and meeting him, be even prepared, working while you have still given us work to do. But we might do it in all the ordinary ways, for your glory. Set our expectations rightly. Help us. And God, help us to learn from this text the hope that we have in you. And so God, please help us. In Jesus' name, amen.